CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, top of the morning to you. May you have the hindsight to know where you've been, the foresight to know where you're going, and the insight to know when you've gone too far. Okay, that's, that's, that's enough of St. Patrick's Day. That's it uh, for me. Okay, we've got a lot to talk about today. Most people, actually, right across the board in terms of the American media, I don't know if you have heard a word about this. I have not. Now, I don't watch media 24-7. I, you know, it's possible somebody mentioned it. But in front of the United States House and Senate, and before the president, the vice president, President Zelensky of uh, Ukraine proposed a new international agency to protect democracies around the world. Have you heard a word about it? I'll tell you about that in just a moment. Also, why are Tucker and Fox News and the right wing lining up with the authoritarian countries around the world? Is, is Putin taking lessons from Tucker or is it the other way around? Also, good news. Denver has sent mental health teams instead of cops over 2,000 times now. No police backup needed ever. And also, what should America do about the pro-Russian trolls and the TikTok war? It's absolutely fascinating. We'll do a deep dive into what, what is going on in the meme warfare space. And of course, picking up your phone calls. But I want to start out with what Zelensky said before the world. Well, mostly before the United States. You know, he's addressed, he addressed the German parliament a short while ago. And I don't know if he made the same sales pitch. I wasn't able to watch his uh, address to the German parliament. But we live in an era right now where democracies, since uh, you know, around the middle of the Bush regime, the Bush administration, of course, really gave democracies a black eye. You had arguably the majority of Americans saying we should not invade a country that had nothing to do with 9-11, had no weapons of mass destruction, which is basically minding its own business, Iraq. And yet Bush did it anyway and talked 48 other nations into supporting him and three other nations into actually providing weapons for that. And it really it really damaged democracy all around the world. Freedom House noted that, uh, you know, a, a total the, the present threat to democracy, they say, is the product of 16 consecutive years of decline in global freedom. This goes back to when you know, Bush declared his war in Iraq. And they note a total of 60 countries suffered declines over the past year, while only 25 improved. As of today, some 38% of the global population live in not free countries, the highest proportion since 1997. Only about 20% now live in free countries. So what Zelensky said to the American Congress 
Well, I'll, I'll read it to you. This, this is what he said. He said, quote, Russia has attacked not just us, not just our land, not just our cities. It went on a brutal offensive against our values, basic human values. It threw tanks and planes against our freedom, against our right to live freely in our own country, choosing our own future. Now, as, as you know, and as I talked about at some length last week, the Budapest Memorandum was supposed to protect Ukraine. Ukraine was the fourth largest nuclear power in the world in 1994. When they signed this agreement with Russia and the United Kingdom and the United States, Bill Clinton signed it, that promised that Ukraine's borders would never be violated if they simply gave up those 1,900 nukes, most of which were pointed at the United States. They did. They gave them up. The president of Ukraine signed the document. And then we ignored it. So Zelensky is, you know, kind of coming to the table saying, hey, what about, what about us? You know, we gave up all this stuff at your, you know, based on your promise. And it doesn't look like the world can do anything about a madman dictator trying to destroy a democratic country. It reminded me so much when I listened to his speech of uh, Franklin Roosevelt's speech from um, uh, December 29, 1940, I, almost exactly a year before we entered World War II, where FDR came out and basically said, we need to start making weapons and we need to start lending them. Remember Lend-Lease? I mean, you don't remember, probably you're not old enough, but that's what it was, uh, lending them to Great Britain because they were under constant bombardment by the Nazis. And FDR said the experience of the past two years has proven beyond a doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. No man can tame a tiger into a kitten by stroking it. There can be no appeasement with ruthlessness. There can be no reason wi reasoning with an incendiary bomb. We know now that a nation can have peace with the Nazis only at the price of total surrender. And then he, you know, he said, he also said, you know, let's be clear about this, my friends. He said, but we well know that we cannot escape danger or the fear of it by crawling into bed and pulling the covers over our heads. And then he goes on to say that the, the history of recent years proves that the shootings and chains and concentration camps are not simply the transient tools, but the very altars of modern dictatorship. They may talk of a new world order, but what they have in mind is but a revival of the oldest and the worst, tyranny. In that, there is no liberty, no religion, no hope. So at that time, the League of Nations had died. The United Nations had not yet been birthed. There was no international agency. And FDR wrapped up that December 29, 1940 speech by saying that America must become, quoting him, the great arsenal of democracy. In fact, that's typically what they call that speech, was the arsenal of democracy speech. But now, I mean, who is going to do this? How does this happen? Well, this is where Zelensky came in. Now, before anybody goes nuts about this, let me be very clear. I'm not agreeing with Zelensky on this. What I am saying is he has opened the door to a conversation that I think we in the United States and the world need to have. I don't think that the military solution he proposes is the right way to go, and I'll tell you why. But I do think that we need to do something. And I don't know what it is. I have a couple of ideas. 
You know, some people have been posting suggestions on Twitter. I'll get to that in just a minute. But this is what Zelensky said in his speech before the U.S. Congress. He said, we need to create new tools to respond quickly and stop the war, the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, which began on February 24th. Today, the world does not have such tools. The war of the past have prompted our predecessors to create institutions that should protect us from war, but they unfortunately don't work. We see it, you see it, so we need new ones, new institutions, new alliances, and we offer them. And this is what Zelensky laid out. He said, we need a new international agency like the United Nations, only he wants to call it the U-24. Why U-24? Well, U for United, 24, because it means that within 24 hours, this agency will be able to stop any country that attacks a non-belligerent country, any, any country that just attacks another country. He said, we propose to create an association, U-24, United for Peace, a union of responsible countries that have the strength and consciousness to stop conflicts immediately, provide all the necessary assistance in 24 hours if necessary, even weapons if necessary, sanctions, humanitarian support, political support, finances, everything you need to keep the peace and quickly save the world and save lives. Now, he went on to say this association could also deal with natural disasters. It, you know, it could be kind of a rapid response force. And then he, he, he wrapped it up by saying, ladies and gentlemen, Americans, if such alliance would exist today, that is U-24, we would be able to save thousands of lives in our country, in many countries in the world, those who need peace, those who suffer inhumane destruction. Now, you know, nobody can accuse Zelensky of not thinking big, right? Basically, we need a, a, he's saying we need a United Nations with weapons. Well, the United Nations was very careful not to have weapons. They have a peacekeeping force, but even that came, you know, a little, a little ways down the road and very reluctantly. NATO is the only multinational military force, and NATO only protects their own countries. And my concern about this, and I'll say this right up front, the reason why I think it's a bad idea what Zelensky is proposing is, you know, the old Lord Acton quote, absolute power corrupts absolutely. If there is a single world organization that is, capable, that is so powerful that it can stop the United States or stop Russia, you know, keep in mind, we, did, we lied our way into a war in Iraq, which was illegal, not to mention Vietnam. And, and more people died in Iraq and Vietnam than have died in Ukraine so far. So, you know, this would have to be an agency that could restrain George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, as well as Vladimir Putin. And my concern is that any agency that large, well, you know, just keep in mind, Adolf Hitler's sales pitch to his people was that he was going to create a thousand years of peace. Just put us in charge of the world, Hitler said, and we will, we will bring peace to the world. You know, it, it, it reminds me of, uh, I think it was Tacitus in Tacitus and Agricola who said, uh, you know, they, they make the world a desert and they call it peace. Well, you know, I don't think that's going to work. I mean, that, that was the, the Nazi suggestion. And not to say that Zelensky is a Nazi or anything close to that. But, you know, that, that's why I say, you know, we need to be careful. But on the other hand, there might be some other things we can do. I mean, perhaps a solution is to expand the International Court of Justice, to give them the authority to actually seize, prosecute, and punish in real time any nation's leaders who drag their countries into illegal war. I mean, that court, just day before yesterday, declared Putin, uh, you know, basically a war criminal, his war illegal, and ordered the war to stop but they have no teeth. They have no enforcement mechanism. 
perhaps there's another way altogether that we haven't even thought of. And so I toss this out to you. You know, what say you? What do you think is possible? I've noticed on Twitter that there have been a, you know, a number of suggestions that I thought were, uh, were interesting. Another one's a, you know, anti-gaslighting initiative says whether or not it could keep world peace, the world should have a world organization of democracies that only countries with true democracy can join. The U.S. system would have to go through major reforms to qualify. All true democracies should shame all other countries with this. Michael Wyckoff says it's a good idea, but how does a global peace agency deal with the problem of a rogue leader? Excellent questions. I, like I said, I don't have answers here, but I do think we should be talking about it, and our media isn't. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Zelensky, the core of his entire speech was creating a new international agency, and nobody's even talking about it in American media. Johnny in Belgium watching us on YouTube. Hey, Johnny, what's on your mind today? Where in Belgium? Hi. Where in Belgium are you? Brussels. Brussels. Oh, it's a beautiful city. So what's on your mind? Ah, uh, yeah. What's on my mind is authoritarianism. Yeah, go for it. Have you heard of, tell me, have you heard of Bob Altemeyer's RWA scale? Uh, from his book, The, the Authoritarians? One. Yes, that's yes, the I, one. I have the book. I'm, I'm familiar. With, I don't recall the details of it, but I, you know, I read it, what, a decade or so ago? What it came out, and then uh, actually, what got me reading it was uh, John Dean having written a book, Conservatives Without Conscience, based on Bob Altmyer's book. I had John Dean on; he told me yeah. about it. I got his, I got Altmyer's book and read it. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. What's your point? Yeah, well, well, last year, there, this American data company called Morning Consult did a survey of a number of Western countries. And they found that uh, Americans are far more authoritarian than Europeans. It's true. It was something like, like 25.6% of Americans rank as highly authoritarian, whereas only 6.7% of Germans do. And that's amazing. Well, that's because Germans have seen the consequences of authoritarian populism, and America hasn't yet. Yeah, I mean, it's, or we're just beginning to reckon with irony? it. Pardon? Isn't there isn't there a kind of historical irony in that the land of the the once land of the Nazis is now the land of freedom lovers, and the land of the free is now becoming the land of the fascists? I think Johnny, what it tells us is that people are capable of learning from the tragedies of history. I mean, the Germans certainly learned the lesson of Hitler's rise to authoritarianism. Although that said, I mean, you know, you've got a major Nazi or a new a neo-Nazi movement in Germany that is gaining political power. The uh, AFD, uh, uh, I forget what the A stands for, but, you know, for Deutschland, it's, it's, the, new, it's the new nationalist party. No, it's no, not, no. It's, it's more than that because, you know, the, they surveyed at least seven countries and they found like in the UK, it's only 10 percent of people right. in, in France and in France and England and, and Spain. The number is about 10 percent of the population. Yeah. Only like 10 percent of people are highly authoritarian. So it's, it's not just the Germans who have learned about from the Nazis. Well, all of it's, Europe did, obviously. Yeah. I, you know, I, th I, I, what I would, the blame that I would place, Johnny, if, if there was a blame to place on why America is willing to follow authoritarian populists like Trump, whereas European countries generally don't, or at least a majority of them don't, 
um, is that we failed after World War II. We revealed the horrors of the, of the, of the war. We revealed the horrors of the Holocaust. But most people, I, I think most Americans, particularly most younger Americans, think of it as, oh, that was that nasty guy Hitler who went out to kill the Jews and the, and the gypsies and gay people and communists and stuff like that, rather than understanding that this was authoritarianism, pure and simple, what Hitler was selling. And we have to learn how to recognize it. We have to learn how to recognize it in our own country. And that's where we failed. I think it's the education system, too. My point. America has cut your public education system. It's underfunded. Yeah. If America spent more on public education, your people would be less authoritarian. I agree. I agree. Johnny, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you, and I appreciate your listening to us there in Brussels, Belgium. We'll be right back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. So, uh... <laughs> The news is very strange out there, and, and I, I think you have to ask this question. Is Tucker channeling Putin, or is Putin channeling Tucker? And you know, I, I ask this as a serious question. This, this is, uh, you know, Putin called for a self-purification of Russia. In other words, he's cracking down hard on internal dissent. Nixon tried this during the Vietnam War. Remember the love it or leave it thing? And, and people actually were you know, fleeing to Canada, but you know, not in huge numbers, but Jimmy Carter actually gave them an amnesty. And Nixon tried you know, to, to crack down, but 
it, it really, and, and, and a lot of anti-war activists were targeted with, you know, a whole range of, of you know, sketchy uh, arrests, drug arrests and things like that. Uh, you know, which Nixon's, uh, which H.R. or uh, John Ehrlichman later said, yeah, you know, we did the whole war on drugs so we could bust up the anti-war hippies and the, and the pro-civil rights African-Americans. He just came right out and said it. But this is what, it, but Putin is, is, has, has a police state at his disposal. And he's using it. He says, Russians will be, always be able to distinguish two true patriots from scum and traitors that will simply spit them out like a gnat that accidentally flew into their mouths. I am convinced that such a natural and necessary self-purification of society will only strengthen our country. See, when I hear that language, I hear echoes of Hitler calling, asking for people to call into radio stations and denounce their neighbors. Over 14,000 people have now been arrested in Russia for simply protesting for peace. Meanwhile, Tucker Carlson, who has been parroting pro-Kremlin pro propaganda now for months, maybe, maybe years, God only knows, um, now it seems like the roles are reversed. Tucker Carlson has been, you know, there's a number of things he's been, one of the more recent things he's been saying is, when did Putin try to cancel me, right, or words to that effect? Well, now Putin just invoked cancel culture. He's, you know, Vladimir Putin is quoting, quoting multimillionaire Swanson Food heir uh, Tucker Carlson. This is, this is crazy. And, ta and Carlson is continuing his phony populist shtick, the guy who's made an entire career out of his fake populism scam. Uh, to, I oppose the ruling, cult the cultural ruling class. Right. When he's, you know, he's worth $30 million or more and, and supported by wealthy the donors it's it's just it's just breathtaking what's it going to take for america to realize that this is not right what's it going to take for americans to realize there's nothing conservative about tucker carlson or fox news it's reactionary it's fascistic so when is america going to wake up to tucker carlson and fox news's basically authoritarian, neo-fascist shtick. Could this be the moment? Or is it just, you know, is it going to be more of the same? I, of course, they're going to continue promoting what they're promoting, but number one. And number two, how do we deal with rogue nation? And I include the United States in this very intentionally because we have to think in that frame. I mean, it's really easy to sit around and say, oh, yeah, well, this is what we'll do with Russia the next time they do this. Or this is why, you know, this is how we'll, we'll kick China's ass. But we have committed these kinds of crimes in the past, too. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney lied us into two wars that lasted over 20 years. We're still in Iraq. Lyndon Johnson, you know, a, a great progressive hero, lied us into the war in Vietnam. And we don't really own that. And we should. We should learn from these things. And we should improve our country and we should work to create some sort of an infrastructure that, and maybe the United Nations is the best we can get. I don't know. Uh, let me pick up your thoughts on this. David in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, David, thanks for listening to the GRN. What's up? Yeah, this is a very complicated issue you're talking about because it involves international finance. International finance makes money on wars. We could talk about blowing Putin up, but... The world has evolved into uh, economic warfare. The U.N. doesn't have a bank system. It's got the World Bank. But the World Bank ends up funding these projects that are 
toxic. So right, and I, the World I, Bank I, is is largely independent of the uh, of the UN. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's, it's not entirely, but uh, but so if if the point if my if I'm understanding your point, David, it sounds like what you're saying is that what the Biden administration and the world is doing right now, which is to cut off Russia economically is the best we can do and by the way it may well work uh now and in the and in the future and we should do more of it so you know, we should strengthen well, it. how would that look in vietnam i mean uh, how would the world cut us off from engaging in vietnam see we end up creating all these alliances that supposedly support us then we obligate those other countries to support us economically so then we wage war randomly. I mean, that's the critical issue right now that needs to be addressed. And I, it goes beyond domestic policy. It even goes beyond foreign policy. It's, it's how, how all foreign policy can be regulated. Well, and there's another piece to this, too. And what, what Zelensky was proposing was an alliance of democracies. The United Nations is a democratic institution. But it is not an alliance of democracies. The majority of nations in the United Nations are not democracies. They're kingdoms, they're oligarchies, they're kleptocracies, they're all kinds of things, but most of them are not democracies. So, you know, that's another possible option is for the world to create a, a kind of a parallel United Nations or within the United Nations, do it within the United Nations and create, you know, reinvent essentially the Security Council and say that you know the only nations that can be on the Security Council are those that are democracies. However, then you're into a bipolar world. Then, you've got, then you're basically forcing China, Russia, and some of the other larger autocracies. Now you've got Modi who wants India to align itself with Russia and China. You know, he knows which, end, which part of the world he lives in. Duterte in the Philippines kind of wobbling. You've got Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil talking about you know, getting in tight with, with Russia, maybe. It could cripple the U.N. On the other hand, the U.N. hasn't stopped this war. So, Well, it's complicated, and I think we need to get advice and um, comment from people that have background in that kind of world economic warfare mentality. Yeah, yeah I, I, don't, uh, I don't know I, if you've had those on, the, on your show yet or not, but that uh, would be great. Not so much, but I mean, th those are the folks who are advising Biden right now, and there's, there's a huge debate in that community. I mean... David, I get your point. Thank you very much. Kofi in Seattle. Hey, Kofi, what's up? Hey, how are you doing, Tom? Good. What's on your mind? I think that maybe NATO needs to, re to announce that it's going to reconvene to discuss how it might amend its charter in order to fast-track Ukraine membership. Now, I know that's provocative, but I think we're living in a fantasy world if we think that Putin is just going to tire or that this is just going to fizzle out somehow. Everything that we are considering of the solutions are provocative, and I think we're going to have to be provocative at some point. Otherwise, I mean, what's the option? To sit here and watch him just destroy Ukraine, assassinate the president, make that country uninhabitable. I mean- And then move on to Moldova. Yeah, we're going to have to choose at some point, and the choice that we make is going to be provocative. Period. End of story. This is an argument, uh, Kofi, that I'm hearing from a lot of retired generals on television. And I'm always wary of retired generals because usually they're also on the board of big defense companies. <laughs> you know, there's the old saying uh, from uh, Abraham Maslow, the, the famous psychologist back in the 1970s. He said, you know, when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. 
I get it that, you know, had Ukraine been a NATO country, that probably Russia would not have invaded them. And, and I think that they need to be fast-tracking Moldova right now for NATO membership and Finland and Sweden as well, uh, Finland in particular, because they've got a huge border with Russia. And, th and these are already countries that are members of the EU. That's so, right. I, I mean, I don't understand why this is taking take so long, but I think that we're just going to have to, at some point, think about being provocative and you know all this talk about how much of russia's military is committed to ukraine well it also means that there isn't much of a military to protect protect russia right well my understanding is that you know russia's army actual army is probably in the neighborhood of around eight hundred thousand people and there's around two hundred thousand of them in ukraine right now so you know they've got plenty of army left over not to mention they have a draft like ours that they can just that, flip the switch but that also includes conscripts who may or may not be right and, in and support people Ukraine. and logistics people and all you know i mean you know any army is not all fighters in fact it's probably right. you know half or a little less than half fighters but again i'm i'm wandering into an area you know military strategy and military stuff is something hey, that i know very little hey, about hey Tom, the real problem though Forget all this other stuff. You got to deal with Tucker Carlson and the and the Tucker Carlsons around the world. If you don't deal with that, whatever solutions you talk about that require democratic reform, they're not going to happen. As long as you have people like Tucker Carlson, it's not going to happen. Yeah, Kofi, thank you for the call. Paul in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'd like to talk about the whole notion of the European Union. You know, it's a half a billion people. And it's a long-term project, just for a shorthand, I'm going to call it the United States of Europe. Mm -hmm. they, they're integrating sovereign nations politically into the European Union. They have a parliament. Every nation elects members to the parliament. They have a common currency. Uh, they have a central bank, the European Central Bank. So they're economically, financially integrated. They're getting politically integrated. And they have NATO, which is the uh, basically the coordinated uh, Pentagon of Europe. Now, Canada and the United States are a part of it, and it goes back to you know, the pre-fall uh, pre of the Berlin Wall and, and right. the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Yeah. However, today, for all intents and purposes, it, it is not out to conquer the world. Everyone in Europe, other than Russia, <laughs> seems to want to be part of a larger whole. You can go from one end of Europe to the other. There's no borders. There's no border. There's no one build a fence and, you know, keep keep the Albanians out of Italy or keep the Italians out of – I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. They're moving forward with a program that has finally brought peace to Europe where people have been tearing one another's throats out for hundreds of years. You know, the, the uh, Spanish Armada – yeah, I mean, you know, it's ridiculous. The Spanish Armada and the English Empire. So what's the point the you're trying to make, Paul? We're going to hit a break here uh, well, in a second. Well, here, here's the point. The analysis that's being presented by the intellectuals, from even from the far left, is that somehow we are provoking the megalomaniac, oligarchic uh, imperialists of Russia by coming up to their border with NATO. Yeah, it's a BS argument. I mean, even Putin has rejected that argument two weeks ago or a week ago when he gave that long rambling speech about how Ukraine was never actually a country. It's part of Russia and we're just reclaiming our own territory. And, and the, uh, the other thing is that they seem to miss this idealistic push to unify the people together for 
decades now, Russia has sent their military elite, their command to NATO headquarters. Now, you, now I know you said you don't read up on this a lot, but you, you can go to these different sites that are you know, the Atlantic Council, and you'll see the great progress of of peace that was being brought about by the fall of the Berlin Wall. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the disarmament of the of Ukraine. They gave up nuclear weapons. Right. I mean, who does that? They they had they used to build aircraft carriers. They sold an aircraft carrier to the Chinese. The Chinese don't even have aircraft carriers. They, they got an old Ukrainian one. Like here, here, take mm-hmm. it. We don't want it. We're not trying to conquer the world. And and and, and the final thing that just seems to be completely bypassed and all this, there's like this, this, the Ukrainians, a portion of them over in that breakaway area, fought for the Nazis in World War II. Well, when the Nazis rolled through the Ukraine, these are people who just got done being murdered by the millions in Stalinist famines in the Ukraine who had their lands dispossessed, the Kulaks, who were the people who were like... Four million people were starved in Ukraine by Stalin. and, and, of course, if you have an invading army that's coming in and they're going to take apart Moscow and take the Kremlin down, you have a shot at freedom. You just got – these are people within a decade of being mass murdered by starvation and beatings and sent to, being sent to Siberia and being dispossessed. And they're wondering why they fought with the Nazis. They didn't fought for them. They fought for themselves because an invading Well, and it wasn't – by the way, it wasn't just the Ukrainians. I mean, you had people fighting with the Nazis in Norway in France and Spain. Paul, I got to run, but thank you for the call. In fact, Spain and Italy were aligned with the Nazis and nobody's running around going, oh my God, there's Nazis in Spain and Italy because they fought with Hitler. I mean, yeah, good point, Paul. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? 
Well, Tom, we can defeat fascism around the world and in this country economically. I mean, you were just talking about, yes, the Republican Party has turned fascist. But my, my thought today is about comparative economies. I just looked it up. California has an economy twice the size of Russia. Hmm. Russia's uh, domestic product, gross domestic product in 2020 was $1.48 California was $3.1 It's more than twice as much. Wow. And so, it and the United me. States was in the neighborhood of twenty trillion. Yeah. So, you know, so what's that? Uh, we're 50, California alone is fifteen percent of the population of the economy of the United States. Right. So, what does that tell? It tells you that look, they the red states, the fascist states, they're the laboratories of autocracy. We are the laboratories of democracy. And I've been saying this. You know my theme is we need to just pull away from them and let them suffer economically. There's, there are constitutional ways to do that. We don't have to violate, you know, have to violate the commerce clauses and all that. We just have to push for the same kind of uh, individual states' rights that they keep wanting to do, and they can't survive with it. And stop trying to push all these gigantic federal progressive programs, you know, like Build Back Better. I think I'm to the point where, yeah, every every one of those things in Build Back Better should have been put up one bill at a time to make the Republicans vote it down, and then we just go and pass those things in the blue states that have the money to do it. You know, if Missouri wants to have a death penalty for abortion, let them do it. You know what, uh, you know what Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said? Any GD thing that damn people want to do, let them. <laughs> you know what? Let them, because it's going to be there. Here's the problem, though, Paul. You've got, you've got millions and millions of good-hearted Americans who are living in red states, who are not endorsing the politics of the red states, whose families have lived there for generations. They're not going to move. They're not, going to, they're not able to move. Most of them can't afford to move. And you would be consigning them to, well, I mean, we, we already have. I mean, like, like Florida, you know, under both Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis, they've refused to expand Medicaid. So if you're working low income in Florida, you're screwed when it comes to health insurance. I guess I'm answering my own question here. Uh, no, I, I don't agree. You, that's the answer you've given me before, and I've thought about that. And I've been thinking, won't people in those states, won't women in those states, when it comes to abortion, start going, hey, how come Washington State and Oregon and California, they got all this stuff, and we don't? They're going to start, you've used, it, you've used the analogy of children. Just give an unequal amount of cookies to a, to a group of four-year-olds, and you'll see what happens. Well, I think we'll have that. People will start to see if we stop bailing these states out, with these programs and saying, oh, we got to give you something, because what they do, those states, is they take, the, they take what we have, they, they bite the hands that feed them, and they call it socialist, and then that's what yeah. they're... But how do you account, say. Paul, for the fact that in your state of Washington, in my state of Oregon, in California, you've got, in, in terms of land mass anyway, more than half the state controlled by, you know, fanatic Republicans? Because it's... Well, there's the good example. But that's not half the population. No, it's, it's not. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you that, but, but, uh, which is why they're all blue states. But how is it that can, I mean, Northern California, the northern third of California, if it was its own state, it would be a red state. How is that in a state that is practicing economic progressivism? How, how has it well, not filtered down to these people? Is it all just the power of Fox News? No, I, I, I think they actually do. I mean, you hear Eastern Washington say, oh, damn, 206ers, they think they know everything. But, you know, Eastern Washington doesn't really do anything. They want it to be the separate state of Eastern Washington. And they, and as you well know, Tom, being a native uh, Michigander like I am, remember the UP, the Upper Peninsula, yep. wanted to be their, own, their 51st state of Superior. But, you see, uh, drinking and ice fishing is not an economy. So they could never do that. <laughs> right. It's like... 
there's just they keep grousing about it. How do you think that uh, Eastern Washington's, uh, you know, all of their produce is going to get to market without the Port of Seattle and the Port of Tacoma? They aren't. So they, they kind of go, well, we like to talk a lot, but actually, uh, you know, the, the same thing happened with the, the schools is that the legislature or the court actually ordered uh, that, that. But the, if they got if they got control of Washington or if they got control of Oregon, Paul, you would see these these laws tomorrow morning. You know, they would do away with Medicare, Medicaid expansion. They would they would be passing, you know, death penalty laws for for women who get abortions. Um, I mean, right. you know. It, it okay, would be happening. You, you, you already know the examples I've used before is that we have big programs like like Medicare. You don't think that it hasn't been or doesn't been expanded. It has. It's been privatized, expanded it's in Medicare Part uh, Part D and in Medicare Part C, which is Medicare Disadvantage and Medicare Part D, the prescription drugs. Those are all Medicare expansions, and they're privatized and they're gigantic expansions. Right. So you know we we pass these great. Uh, progressive programs and then they come along and and, and privatize them and, and, blow and them up. yeah turn them into yeah. profit yeah is, is the bottom yep. line okay paul <laughs> good to hear from you thank you very much margie in wisconsin rapids wisconsin hey margie what's on your mind today hey tom if i'm having trouble being coherent it's because something that one of your callers said has so enraged me okay which Let was missouri Impose the death penalty on women who have abortions? Oh, Paul's call, yes. How dare, how dare you? How dare you want almost 50% of the population to live in abject terror for over half their lives? Because make no mistake about that, this. That is what these laws do to women, is it makes them live their lives in terror. It makes them terrified that if they have an unintended pregnancy, what are they going to do? Risk the death penalty or get the care they need? The other states are literally putting bills through to outlaw atopic pregnancies, which has zero chance in viability and a 90% death rate of the woman if it's not treated. How about the woman in Texas who had to be airlifted to Colorado because she was having a miscarriage and was uh, they couldn't treat her in Texas with their new law? Yep. How about that they're trying to foot through that uh, birth control will be uh, fall under these laws because many people feel, uh, feel that uh, they're aborticides. How dare you so glibly write off my life Right off the lives of my niece, the lives of my sisters, the lives of your wives, your daughters. How dare you? Margie, I agree with you, which is why I pushed back on the proposal. And uh, I, you know, I get it. I get your outrage, and, and uh, I am not willing to give up on all of America. I think that we need, to, we need to be defending our brothers and sisters and parents and children and relatives and whatnot, both literally and metaphorically, all across America. I absolutely agree with you. Margie, thank you so much for the call. Rudy in Atlanta, Georgia. Hey, Rudy, what's on your mind today? Hey, um, I live in Georgia. I sided with Paul for the simple reason I believe the markets would decide that. I believe that eventually when people start to realize where their money is going, it'll make them wake up and vote vote differently. So Why well, hasn't I, I it happened like, yet? I'm, Rudy, I mean, you know, well, you, you're I right mean, there in the well, middle of it. I, I, I understand. I understand that, Tom. But I was going to second that by saying that if you were to pass the, the John Lewis Protection Act, that would break up a lot of that. Because if you have those two stones out there, meaning 
you know, people can vote fairly and eventually you will vote these people out that are making these laws. That's what I see in what Paul was saying. I mean, I like I said, I live in Georgia and I would never want to offend my daughters because I have all girls in my family and I understand what the lady was saying. But there has to be other ways to fix this this giant and one of them is voting these people out. So if you were to allow the red states to eventually find out what's going on, it'll wake the people up. So you're voting for let red states be red. I get it. Okay, thank you very much no, for the no, call. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know, no, what, what, what I'm saying, Tom, what I'm saying is the markets would decide that. I think the markets would make these red states change their colors. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. You have more faith in the markets than I do, Rudy, but, but I, I totally get what you're saying. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call. Steve in Bellingham, Washington. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Love your show. Thank you. Uh, I just... I noticed you said that you were considering writing an article about how democracy is a better political system than autocracy. And I want to strongly encourage you to write that article because we need it now. I know that in my own particular situation, I have a cousin in Arkansas who's very intelligent, but I think misinformed, and he's you know, been propagandized. And he's, you know, Fox is no longer right enough for him. He's gone on to further right websites. And he openly and unashamedly denounces democracy. Um, Yeah, he used a tired old cliche analogy, which it surprises me people fall for this. But, you know, I guess he's been propagandized. He said that, you know, democracy is like three wolves and a sheep deciding on what to eat for dinner. And I told him that is ridiculous because we're not sheep and wolves. We're people. But Well, the other thing know, about democracy think, is that a democracy yeah. has within it internal safeguards to protect the sheep from the wolves. I mean, it's the exact opposite of what a, a, an actual democracy where you have rules for the game of politics and rules for the game of the of economics would actually, in a world of sheep and wolves, and I think you can argue that that's, we do have that to some extent, would actually protect the sheep. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And one other argument that I have in favor of democracy, especially over, like, monarchy, is, you know, there were some good kings and queens, but what happens when you get a crazy king or queen, you know? But what you were talking about earlier to me seems more important about the wisdom of the crowd. And to me, that's very, you know, persuasive. And I think all of us, me in particular, but nationwide, this is one of the biggest issues in the country right now. We all need good, strong arguments against this, you know, crazy fever that's rising. Yeah, this autocratic movement that has swept the Republican Party. Yes. And there's nothing new about this. I mean, you find, you know, in the UK, there are people who are, you know, pro-royalty, right? Or there's a word for it. But, you know, they really don't want Queen Elizabeth to be running the country. They, they just kind of like the, the pomp and ceremony of it all. And, and, you know, I get that. But countries... Well, I have a hard time getting that, to be honest. I don't get the, the worship of wealth that people love to do. I don't get it. But for some reason, they do. Yeah. And without getting granular on that. But I think that the idea that a single person or a a very small club should basically control everything is something that is largely confined to the right, the hard right in the United States. 
and uh, yeah. it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked in countries that profess to be the left, like you know the Soviet Union. And you know, yeah. Okay, Steve, I'll take your advice, or I'll take it seriously. Thank you very much for Thank the call. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. We will be back. I've got a, a incredible good news story for you, and also the Russian trolls on TikTok. And then I'll pick up your calls right after this. Here's a good news story for you. Denver had, uh, back in 2016, started a program with four mental health professionals where when 9-11 took a call from somebody, if it sounded like it was a mental health crisis, they would send one of these mental health professionals rather than a cop. They have now, this has grown. It was, it was called the Support Team Assisted Response. It's, it's a, a pilot program called STAR that they really cranked up in June of, la, of two years ago, June of 2020. It now has 32 professionals. A uh, great piece about this, by the way, at, by Tave over on uh, dailycoast.com. It now has 32 professionals, including 15 volunteers who, re, who include behavioral and medical health clinicians who have responded to over 2,300 calls. These include mental health crises, drug use, alcohol abuse, and issues associated with schizophrenia, delusion, severe depression, and suicidal tendencies. 2,300 calls. And as uh, Tave notes over at Daily Coast, and in all these calls, according to a, rep- a report released last month, Not once, not one single time has the police had to be called as a backup for a threat to safety. Not once. So as this uh, diarist reports, now the police can focus on other serious matters and allow their fellow professionals to do what they do best with peace, peacefulness and dignity, with respect and gentleness. It worked so well that in January, just two months ago, the city council uh, of Denver approved one and a half million dollars to expand the program. We've got a similar program that is in a tryout phase here in Portland, if my understanding is correct. And I'm guessing that we're going to see more and more countries around the world doing this. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The other thing I wanted to flag for you is Russia appears to be hiring TikTok influencers. Uh, A whole bunch of of TikTok influencers are doing this concerted propaganda campaign on TikTok in Russian uh, with the caption, Russian lives matter. And they're pushing three trends. Number one is the RLM uh, logo, the hashtag, Russian lives matter. Some of it's in English as well. And many of these videos, even though they're from People who have been social influencers, like selling beauty products and, and things like that for, for a long time on TikTok, they're now promoting this. Number one is Russia Lives Matters. The other is promoting the letter Z, which I think is totally bizarre. The, the, the Russians are promoting the letter Z to, 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 yes, this is our logo for invading Ukraine, which is led by a guy named Zelensky with a Z. I, you know, but in any case, they're doing that. 
It's like the new swastika. And there's also uh, a, a, a meme claiming that real women support the war in Ukraine and uses the uh, Z hand symbol. And uh, one user is a beauty influencer with 3 million followers. Another account has uh, 1.8 million. It's a comedy account. Another has prank videos, 3.2 million followers. It looks like what's going on is the Russians are hiring these folks. At the same time, uh, what we're seeing are actual flat-out lies appearing from Russian troll farms. One account, this is uh, ProPublica, just did a huge report on this. Russian-language Twitter accounts, one N-E underscore N-U underscore C-H-E, for example, shared a video of a man standing in front of rows of dark gray body bags that appeared to be filled with corpses. The video is actually from a climate change demonstration in Vienna a year ago. But he's like, oh, yeah, these are, you know, these are the people, uh, these uh, Ukrainians who are dying. So it's happening on Twitter. It's happening on TikTok. This war in Ukraine is not just being fought with bombs and guns and bullets in Ukraine. It is being fought all over the world in the information space. And keep in mind, TikTok is Chinese owned. So where does that go? Well, we'll find out. But what's the old saying? We live in interesting times. Yeah, indeed. It's the Tom Hartman program, speaking the truth to the multinational corporations we'd really rather you didn't know all about. We'll be right back. Our book today is Future War, Preparing for the New Global Battlefield by Robert Latif, L-A-T-I-F-F. This is from the introduction. On a sweltering August day following weeks of heightened tension with Russia over its actions in Ukraine and Syria and harsh words between the United States and China over actions in the South China Sea, and as workers are preparing to depart the cool of their air-conditioned Manhattan office buildings for the gridlocked highways and subways, Several large electric power plants along the East Coast simultaneously experienced dramatic overspeed conditions in their large turbine generators. Plant operators are unable to stop the steam turbines whose automatic control and data systems have been infected by sophisticated computer malware, and they catastrophically tear themselves apart, cutting power to large segments of the population and industries in the Northeast. Building systems shut down, hospitals switch to emergency generators, trains stop running, traffic lights cease operating, and Wall Street trading comes to a halt. At the same time, 1,100 miles to the south, a massive rocket sits fueled and ready to launch a critical national security satellite when an explosive-laden private aircraft flies at low altitude into the Cape Canaveral launch pad area and, despite repeated warnings, slams into the pressurized fuel tank and solid rocket motors creating an enormous conflagration. Half a world away, elite commandos equipped with the latest high-technology equipment but unidentifiable as a national army attack U.S. and allied interests near areas of disputed territory. Thus are fired the opening shots of a new war. These hypothetical events represent a radically different style of conflict fought with new tools and against new and unfamiliar enemies. When most people think of war, they imagine soldiers doing battle with other soldiers, employing tanks, artillery, and other recognizable weapons. However, in this century, war has morphed into something we can scarcely recognize, and future conflicts will be qualitatively and quantitatively unlike those of the past. They will be fought using innovative and unusual weapons, many of which, because the technologies have both civilian and military uses, will be available to far more people who are far less skilled in their employment. The so-called democratization of technology 
has diminished the monopoly of advanced countries on the tools of war. 21st century armed conflicts often have no battlefield in the traditional sense. The concept of opposing armies clashing in deadly struggle but moderated by international conventions of behavior seems a thing of the past. In 1999, Chinese colonels Kuo Liang and Wang Shuangshui predicted that soldiers would increasingly be computer hackers, financiers, drug smugglers, and agents of private corporations rather than members of a military, and that their weapons would include not only airplanes, cannons, poison gas bombs, and biochemical agents, but also computer viruses, net browsers, and financial derivative tools. Their predictions were prescient. Yesterday's wars were, like World War II, about saving civilized nations from maniacal dictators, or, like the conflicts in Vietnam and Korea, devoted to a clash of ideologies in the attempt to limit the spread of one hegemon over another. They were big affairs involving large military forces and enormous violence. Today's wars are more about cultural and religious hatreds, using violence as a means to change the hearts and minds of people, among whom the killing occurs with more frequency. Tomorrow's wars will be different still, fought largely for political dominance with stealth and cunning, targeting innocence and institutions, heavily dependent on information superiority, and employing strange new weapons. While we have a highly motivated and well-trained and equipped armed forces that will adapt, we are not prepared as a nation to react well to the inevitably messy and ambiguous situations these new conflicts and weapons will present. We still have no clear idea of what constitutes an act of war in cyberspace now, nor of how we might respond to such an act. It is not enough for the military to be prepared. Neither the public nor its decision makers have yet fully comprehended the significance of the changes in the types of conflict and the tools with which they will be fought. Without question, there will be circumstances when decision makers will find it necessary, or at least think it necessary, to send soldiers into classic boots-on-the-ground combat situations. We will continue to project force with our powerful aircraft, our munitions, and our aircraft carrier strike groups. When war is fought in foreign lands, it could well be against other high-tech armies. However, war will increasingly be more personal and often fought closer to home. It will not lend itself to the traditional massive displays of U.S. firepower. It will affect individuals directly, not as some distant conflict we read about in newspapers or watch in the movies or on the Internet. Americans will be targeted on U.S. soil, often, as we have seen in San Bernardino and Orlando, by homegrown terrorists. This form of war will be messy and complex, and it will not lend itself to easy, quick, soundbite solutions. It may not even be clear for a while who perpetrated the violence against us. Was a state-sponsored or a random act of terror? Will we unleash massive destruction on foreign countries in retaliation for attacks by terrorists residing on our own soil? If so, to what end and with what consequences? There are always consequences, whether they be the death or capture of our own troops, unnecessary civilian casualties, or the incitement of more violence. The book Future War by Robert Latif. Terry in Ventura, California. Hey, Terry, what's up? Hi, Tom. My uh, general topic, Tom, is about the toxicity of American politics and state secession movements. But first, Tom, I would be so lost without your program. You just explained to me the importance of SNL, TikTok, opening scene last week. I didn't know about TikTok and the Soviets. If you saw that, it was hilarious. I didn't okay. see it. I'm, now I'm I, sorry. I'm usually asleep it, by it that. Was, 
Okay. It had an opening scene about TikTok and Biden calling them in as domestic advisors. Now I understand their oh. scene. Thank you, Tom. Okay, sure. <laughs> but anyway... My general topic is about that call you had a few calls back where you talked about Northern Cal, the third of California being red. Yeah. And they talked about uh, superiors. Oh, the same is true of the eastern half of Oregon and, and Washington State. Right. My topic, Tom, uh, so much of our political differences really isn't issue oriented. It's been culture. It's cultural wars that started when Reagan, when they started believing that the libs drink the blood of babies, okay? It's a cultural issue. And that led me to think about the recent California recall. Tom, in the uh, recall, I was going to be a good Democrat and not vote for a candidate running for against Governor Newsom, be a good Democrat. I didn't. And it was in partly just a protest, theoretical, theoretical vote. Okay, Tom. But, okay, did you know that uh, Shasta County in the northern part of California was just taken out by Q-oriented people? Yeah. Well, my point is in the recall, uh, as a protest vote, let's say the let's say the fascists took over the United States. I think we'd have more of these under the Republican Party. We'd have more of these succession movements. My point here, okay, in the recall as a protest vote, I didn't not vote for a candidate. I voted for a candidate by the name of Bill Loeb. Why Bill Loeb? He is a part of the California National Party which uh, during the peak of uh, Trump called for the secession of California. And his argument, this is getting back to my cultural issue, what did Bill Loeb say? He got 12,000 votes, I believe, okay? Bill Loeb said we should separate from the United States because of the toxicity of American politics. These people, like, took over Shasta County. If we didn't have Democrats, and Democrats have to be more toxic because the Republicans are so toxic and we're going to fight back. Bill Loeb said in the recall, we need to be separate of the United States. Right, and he got 12,000 votes. I mean, it's a very, very marginalized and, and marginal uh, uh, Tom, that's reasonably my point. position. Tom, that's my point. His point was, if we could be rid of the toxicity of the Democratic and Republican parties, his view is he could talk to these people. Yeah. And this guy was in the past had been a nominally Democrat, quite yeah. quite strong. I get, I get what you're saying, Terry. What's your solution for ending that toxicity? I mean, I'm looking back on the all the years of my life, what I'm seeing is that our politics didn't start getting really, really toxic until the 1980s when the Supreme Court's decision, you know, in Buckley and, and Bilotti really started biting and we saw really big money coming into the political sphere and Reagan's destruction of labor unions. It, it seems to me like getting money out of politics is the key to ending toxicity in our, po in our politics. If Not we could get rid, rid of, of the labels of the political parties. Oh, you're never going to get rid of labels. People I are always going to form into that. teams and tribes. I mean, that's just, that's just human nature. And in a system with first-past-the-post, winner-take-all elections, you're always going to end up with only two possibilities, two parties. Everybody else is going to be marginalized. So, uh, you know, I... I get what you're saying, but it seems to me like the actual cancer here that's deep down in the system is money. And that takes us back to the whole argument that oligarchy, money, is never as good as democracy, crowdsourced. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.